Good evening. I'm your host, Clifford Brooks, and this is yet another episode of Dante's Old South. Now, my new book, Old Gods, released just a few weeks ago, is now online and in stores all across the country. If you want all my books signed just to you or a loved one, visit my website, www.cliffbrooks.com. As we work towards the meat of this show, which has three wonderful artists and music second to none, I want to stop and say thank you to a few of those who have gone out of their way to make this show happen. First of all, there's Lucid House Publishing, who publishes books from all walks of life to empower, educate, and entertain. Then, Wild Honey Teas, who makes clothing for folks in need of style and inner strength. The Crown Restaurant in Brasstown, North Carolina, serves gluten-free food to anyone who walks through the door and needs the same delicious food that everyone else gets to enjoy. And a bonus, the crown is just a stone's throw away from the John C. Campbell Folk School. The UCLA Extension Writers Program. They make available to everyone coast to coast the ability to learn how to make their creative passions turn into a fruitful vocation. We have the Red Phone Booths which is a swanky speakeasy with locations in Texas, Georgia, and Tennessee. Mercer University Press. I love these folks for giving me the chance to publish a book traditionally and put it out into the world where they are just as much behind the book as I am. And finally, NPR and WUTC for all the help and support they've given us over the years to keep this mad train on the tracks. Now, let's get started with If I Had Wings by the Boxmasters. And just a hint, go look up the main cast of the Boxmasters. <laughs> Tally-ho. Through snow disgrace 
Coming to us from New York City, we have Lizzie Thomas, jazz vocalist, composer, and educator. Lizzie, how are you doing? Hey, Cliff. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, it's wonderful to see you and to uh, put all 10 toes into this interview right up front. I want to know how you made your way into music. Well, I must say I didn't have the luxury of being uh, brought up with a musical family or musical parents. Um, I started asking around age seven to play piano. And my parents looked at each other and thought, where is she getting this from? Uh, but they were wonderful parents and the fact that they were like, okay, we'll, we'll give you a piano in six months if you still want to play. And so... Yes, in six months I wanted to play. So my first instrument is piano, and I played classically for many years, and I actually still play classically. Um, it's a great love of mine to be able to express my emotions and connect my mind, body, spirit sitting at the piano. Um, from there, I did realize that sitting at the piano is kind of lonely, and I really wanted to engage musically in a community. And so I did everything I could find growing up, musical theater, glee club, chorus, choir, all of those things, uh, which then led me um, to basically flip um, from piano primary to mainly a vocalist. I also played clarinet, which is a lot of fun. Uh, but then that shifted my uh, aspirations to really become a vocalist. I went to Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. I studied with Sandra Dudley. Um, she is she trained at Eastman School of Music. Um, I just I loved being in school so much because I was finally in a place where I could just live and breathe music. I graduated undergraduate with a vocal performance degree, which is a fancy way to say that I studied classically for a year. So I know how to take care of my voice. I know how to use my voice. And then was given the option of, okay, well, you can sing whatever genre you want. And it was at that point that I chose jazz. Um, it's still remains, um, a great love of my life, the improvisational aspect of it. Uh, it's never ending. I can sing the same song the rest of my life and never sing it the same way. I really could go on and on about it. Um, but back to loving school so much, I decided, <laughs> and needing to pay bills, I decided to go into graduate school and I received a um, music education degree and focused my studies on piano pedagogy. So I actually had a piano studio um, in Nashville and really loved teaching piano and teaching music. Um, at that point, I was really getting my jazz chops. I was also playing keyboards and background vocals and a lot of indie alternative bands, which was um, really cool experience to be a side guy to be a part of the band and not be the front man um so i learned a lot and you know really um really continue to desire to dig deeper into jazz uh, knowing more working with the best which then led me to move to new york city um, i lived in new york city I, I think I just celebrated 15 years and um, it's a great city and I was able to surround myself with the best jazz musicians in the business, great instrumentalists, 
and through those connections was able to release a really beautiful album featuring a lot of those New York City jazz musicians. As you said earlier, but just a moment ago with educating and, and you know, having your own studio, um, the greats came to you. Uh, didn't uh, you taught Ben Fold's children to play, didn't you? I did, yeah. Um, it, it's, it, did you ever find that along your way in your career that that at the more you stayed true to yourself, that things like that happened, that that energy and these these people were drawn to you? I would say absolutely. I mean, I, I, I find that particularly as an artist, but maybe more so as a human, the more that we understand who we are, the essence of, of who we are, the more that we can then give and the more that people want to be around you because you, it's a positive energy. You're, you're, um, you know, not looking to others to divine to to define who you are you know who you are and that's i like to be around people who know who they are they're fun they, they are and 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 they they feed into you um so much of what you give back to those around you in your in your in your time and in your talent um and everything you've given to music what is music given to you in return yeah That's a, that's, that's a deep question. Um, I feel like I will spend my lifetime answering it. Um, what is music given to me? Music has given me the ability to express myself. It's given me the ability to stretch myself, to dream and believe and to have goals and also how to be in uncomfortable situations and be okay with that. And I think that's a privilege, a pleasure, and and also like it's like I'm jumping off the mountain cliff a lot <laughs> as <laughs> as an artist, um, as a musician. Um, you know, I find that. As a composer, um, I've been really, really writing a lot in this season of my life, um, and have just gone into the studio to record uh, seven original tunes. Um, and I'll have to say, those tunes—they're um, my friends. They've ministered to me in ways when I needed needed anything so music has given has given me a lot i am here today because of my connection to music and it's also given me a community of people that i call family i'm able to express myself you know in my my real deep heartfelt self it's being expressed surrounded by other people who are doing the same thing and we need each other. And that is the beautiful thing about music and everybody loves music. And so it's like, it, it, it's, it's a wonder. It's, it's a wonderful thing. It's done a lot for me. With music as your love language, it's it's not just something, as we mentioned earlier in the show, it's something that you perform, you also compose it. Um, how do you run at that? How, do, how does it fit into your journey? Well, I've composed music um, throughout my life, but I only became a composer of music within this last year. Um, and reason why I say that is because I've finally gotten out of the way. I am able now to, almost like a form of meditation, I'm able to really hear and listen. And yes, I hear melodies, I hear lyrics, I hear, so when I sit down at the piano, which is my main writing instrument, I'm hearing 
melodies and I'm then trying, I'm trying <laughs> to play what I'd hear. Mm. <laughs> um, so some would call that channeling. Some would call that just meditating as an artist and it coming out. Um, however you want to categorize it, it's fine with me. Um, but I really believe that, um, you know, I'm, I'm hearing melodies that are outside of me. I don't go to write a song thinking, I want to express this emotion or I want to express this personal feeling. I really try to actually get out of the way and get out of the process and be a vessel and be um, uh, divinely inspired. So that's my writing process. Um, and in that process, I am receiving healing and I am coming out on the other side. I'm going through the fire. I'm coming out on the other side and there's something that has been produced, something that's been created and that is something that I want to share because I've been able to, like I said, I've gotten out of the way and I want to share it with people because I know that that it's of value, it's of worth. With the worth and the, the incendiary power of your sound, you've become a powerhouse in music, what's it like to be a woman in the landscape of jazz today? I, I honestly can say I think women are having their moment. Um, the world of jazz is still very masculine. I'm not going to lie, but I am a glass half full type of person, and I also see what's happening on stage. Um, I see more women surrounding me. I mean, my publicist is a woman. The when I, you know, talk advertising in certain jazz magazines, that's with women. Um, when it comes to um, women educators, you know, I, I see. Well, and let's not forget, Samara Joy just won Grammy for best jazz vocal and best new artist. And I see a lot of young jazz, jazzers, like a lot of young jazz musicians that are females in their early 20s. And it's really inspiring. And then I see on the other side, uh, these women who are been like real pioneers that are fighting and that are just present in present in really giving women the voice, giving women opportunities. Um, you know, to mention a few, you have Terry Lynn Carrington. She's an incredible jazz drummer. The first female to win Best Jazz Instrumental Album in 2013. You know, it was 10 years mm -hmm. ago. But she's been paving the way, that pioneer spirit. Um, she's at Berkeley Music in Boston. She is the head of Jazz and Gender Justice. She curated the new standards book, 101 Weed Sheets by Women. Um, then you have somebody like Dee Dee Bridgewater, jazz vocalist. You know, she saw an opportunity. Basically, I think she says it's like a hole in the industry where women needed mentorship. Women needed to know that they weren't alone. There needed to be a camaraderie, a community. And she created the Woodshed Network, which is professional support to women in jazz through mentorship. So it, it's really, it's nice to be in the middle of this, you know, I'm where I'm, I'm living it, but I'm also seeing the, the women coming up and I, and I, and there's also this real women supporting women mentality that I am a big proponent of. Like there is room for us all. I want to say that again, there is room for us all. And I think through positivity and through mentorship leadership and through being your most authentic self we are raising the standard and we're also raising the flag to say no 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 here we are and we're not going anywhere you've taken this flame and lit up the night uh with an album called duo encounters um tell us about that please yes um, Do Well Encounters um, 
is really, really special. I think it's an album that is a piece of art. It is, I made it to be listened to. And I also made it to celebrate the incredible jazz musicians that are out there. Um, it's not a typical album. It's myself and 12 different instrumentalists. Um, you know, Ron Carter, Russell Malone, Desron Douglas, Narigo Ueda. Um, I even have a cellist, um, Mari Dorman-Fumanath plays this haunting, haunting, beautiful cello to round midnight, Thelonious Monks, round midnight tune. And that's how we end out duo encounters. Um, it's It was a celebration of coming out of the dark times of COVID and being able to play with as many people as possible and also celebrate all these different instruments and also these musicians. Um, it's also my first album um, since being signed to Dot Time Records. And it's really, uh, it's just really exciting to be able to share this music with the world. You're about to uh, go visit some of the world soon. I think it's up next week in Europe. Tell us about that and what the future holds. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, debuting. You know, I wanted to to really break into the international scene for decade to 15 years and I am going to London and playing at Toulouse-Lautrec Jazz Club and then I'm going to Paris to play at Sunset Sunside. Um, next year I am doing a live recording with Dot Time in Augsburg, Germany. I'll be playing in Switzerland before that, Zurich, and also heading over to um, Stuttgart and Munich. Um, so it's like we ripped the band-aid off or I don't open the can of worms or again I jumped off another ledge. I'm I'm flying and it feels great. So I'm happy to be jumping into Europe and heading across the pond. As you head across the pond, how do we catch you online? Oh yeah, definitely. Um my website is Lizzie, L-I-Z-Z-I-E, the jazz singer. On social media platforms, I'm either Lizzie Thomas or Lizzie, the jazz singer. And I have all of, you know, I'm on all the music channels. You can listen to, to your heart's content. I've got holiday tunes coming out, some Christmas singles I'm going to be launching in the upcoming year because everybody loves a good jingle. And... As I said, the live album's coming out in March. So, you know, I feel like I'm just getting started and it feels great. My band is incredible. And um, onward from here. Well, before you leave us, we're going to play a song of yours called Lush Life. Uh, give us a little bit of background on that and who's involved. My pleasure. So, Lush Life is a jazz tune written by Billy Strayhorn. I consider it um, the most iconic jazz song ever written. Mr. Strayhorn was um, a teenager when he wrote this tune. And several reasons why I love it. Um, it's extremely complicated. It's intervallically challenging. A lot of people never, never sing it. Uh, because it, because of the challenge of it. Uh, when the producer uh, of Duo Encounters and I were talking about song choices, he brought this up, John DiMartino. He also um, plays piano with me and he's my arranger as well. Um, he said, well, what about Lush Life? And I was like, you've just picked the hardest song in the jazz canon. He's like, yeah, you can do it. What's, you know, so that's even more reason. And so I loved the challenge of it. Um, I and, and then the next thing that became even more challenging is, oh, let's do it with a saxophone. Let's bring Wayne, Wayne Escoffery, in, who's an incredible tenor saxophonist. 
let's bring him in and it'll just be voice and saxophone. And it's incredibly haunting. Um, one of the reviewers said we sounded like wheels copulating. Cliff, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> but um, it's a beautiful tune. And it really, you know, I, I would recommend getting the vinyl, putting it on, sitting down, and really listening to this tune because it, it, it speaks to the heartache of loneliness. It speaks to that, to, I think, the heartache of Billy Strayhorn. Um, in an essence of him really trying to saying, I want to be known, but I feel like I can't be known in this world. And so I'm going to write this song. Lizzie Thomas, it has been amazing to have you on here. Thank you so much for being part of this show. Thanks so much for having me, Cliff. It's been a real, real pleasure. Thank you. All right, y'all. Now let's hear Lush Life from Lizzie Thomas. <laughs> Paris will ease 
spite of it. All I care is to smile in spite of it. Forget you, I will, while yet you are still burning inside my brain. Romance is mush, stifling those who strive I'll live a lush life in some small dive and there I'll be what I write with the rest of those who And now we have award-winning poet and artist, Ana Maria Caballero, who's helping to write Web3 Poetry Revolution and co-founder of The Verse Verse. Anna, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. The pleasure is all mine. Now, we have a lot to talk about, probably two shows worth, but we're going to keep it short this time. I want to start with um, the question... How did you find your way into writing? You know, writing pulled me in. Um, I started writing when I was a child um, in elementary school mm -hmm. and middle school. And I realized I had a, a writing problem when um, I had to go out to the drugstore and buy notebooks to replace my school notebooks because I was filling them all up with my poems. And I actually um, had a blog, um, you know, when blogs first came out called The Drugstore Notebook uh, to pay homage to that, to that, you know, the drugstore composition notebooks that I was continuous, continuously having to go out and purchase on my bike. When you say you had a writing problem, um, was it, was it ever expressed to you that that was, it was a, it was taking up too much of your time? No, never. You know, I, I was very much a, a closet writer at the beginning. I, I was just writing all the time, but it was, you know, I say, I say um, problem tongue in cheek, but, um, <laughs> but it was just a passion. I mean, I just couldn't stop myself from writing. I needed to be writing at all time, um, even in class, at home, at night, on the weekend, um, stealing time from time to, to write my poems. And you, you got speed in that. And, and writing on the page quickly from a very young age. And then you made the leap to digital writing, digital poetry specifically. Um, what uh, inspired you to make that leap? You know, well, I, I've been writing traditionally um, for 20 years. Uh, you know, I started as a, as a, uh, a schoolgirl writing my poems on, onto notebooks. I snuck in a few poems into my application to Harvard University um, early action. And I know in my heart that that's the reason why I was accepted. I studied literature at Harvard. I studied French, Spanish, and Italian literature. Um, I was the only student in my in my concentration, which is what they call majors at Harvard. Um, and I spent a lot of time with my professors, um, who all encouraged me to pursue academia. But at the same time, they all seemed really unhappy, to be honest. <laughs> they all seemed... Um, like this, you know, they would complain on one hand and on the other, say, come, come, get a master's, join us. And I just felt like I didn't want 
to write about writing. I wanted to write. And so the most important thing, to be honest, that I learned at Harvard is that I wanted to do things my way. Um, and I, I published traditionally, I published a book of Spanish verse um, when I was in my early 30s. And to my huge surprise, it won a National Poetry Award in Colombia. Um, I was the first woman, um, I'm proud to say, to win that award. And winning that award really was a, a watershed moment for me in which I said, you know what, I'm going to dust off all this writing, all these, all my drugstore notebooks. I'm going to gather them. I'm going to organize my poems in English as well. And I'm going to send them out fearlessly into the world. And I did. And I published uh, two chapbooks. And, you know, I was, I was publishing my work. But I felt at the same time that the life of a published poem was too quiet, like, too insular and too short. It was like uh, a dragonfly that lived and died in the same breath. Um, and I wanted poetry and I wanted to live my published poems and I wanted to connect with others. So I began sharing them on social media. And um, I was really touched to see how people reacted to my poems. They were really simple little video poems that I shared on Instagram and on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, so when I read about Web3 and the possibility of transacting digital assets via the blockchain, it was a very natural leap for me because I already had these digital poems. All I did was just put them on these platforms and share them. Well, tell me more about that um, because my next question, as it would be, is... How did you make this uh, form digital publishing your own? Tell me more about the blocks. Sure. So I, I always write about myself. I write about my daily life. I think um, the mundane is is a very powerful way to access the transcendental. Um, and I also think that from the personal, we access the universal. Um, so you know, I, I write about thoughts that go through my head when I'm cooking. Um, fights that I have with my husband, tension with my mother. And I feel like um, fam family is such a rich and absolutely almost mythological realm, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I write about family endlessly, endlessly, to quote Alicia Ostriker, one of my favorite um, poets. And these poems really have nothing really techy about them at their heart. They're written, you know, with with my hand, with a pencil, a pen, and a paper. But then I transform them into MP4s. I add voice. Um, I work sometimes with artists. I work sometimes with graphic designers that I commission. I, I also uh, create visuals by myself. So I, I really feel like it's expanded. It's burst my creative practice in ways I couldn't have imagined to start putting my, my, my work onto the blockchain where there is a really, really rich network of creative technologists and artists and avant-garde thinkers creating artworks that are now tokenizable because you can certify ownership of them and then actually transactable. I've sold digital poems. Uh, I would have never imagined this possible a few years ago. Well, to best shed light on why so many love your work, I would be honored if you'd share one of your poems for our listeners. Sure. So I'm going to read a poem that is called Chord. Um, I wrote it thanks to, really, I have to credit Campbell McGrath, um, who's a Pulitzer Prize finalist, and he's been my professor. And I had it, this really sort of clunky poem. And he said, Anna, you know, only two or three good villanelles have ever been written, but you should turn this into a villanelle and try it. Why not try it? And so I did, although it has some modifications. I took a bit of liberty with the form. And this poem is from my forthcoming book, Mammal, which comes out next year. And I'm really happy to share it. it won the Steel Toe Books National Poetry Award, and it'll be coming out through this wonderful press. So here is chord. It's tricky to understand the relation 
between the boy that rockets my days and the baby that balloons my midsection. Between the father who falters in a distant location and the brother who deliberately strays. Between the push of the conduit, the live construction inside, which feeds a fetus after conception and the pull that sucks meconium away. These links so tricky, but not like, I think, incantations, such as precede red scarf, white bird, transmutation, no gloved, swift, skilled hands at play, only once, everyone, inside, tied, intimate, communication. Now, everyone, outside, untied, yet roped by correlation. Your daughter, sister, mother, your covey, yours as in federal, wide rights, packed implications. For my baby, to exit my womb, I'll require a C-section. Gloved, swift, skilled hands will fray a literal cord, an umbilical connection. What remains is so tricky. Fabricated words of relation. This is the first time on this show that I've been able to listen to a poem and read it online. When we published it in the Blue Mountain Re Review recently, which I urge people to go read for themselves, but also they get to know more about you. Um, how did you feel when you finished that poem? I'm always interested in the cathartic power of poetry. Um, how did you feel when you got that one done? I felt, you know, I, I felt really intimidated in a way by the form. The Villanelle is a very intimidating form and I wasn't sure um if I'd accomplished um you know doing it honor and it was sort of one of those poems that you share with your with your friends and your colleagues um with quivering hands mm -hmm. and I was really really rewarded to to discover that they that they loved it that they connected with it um and that it wasn't a clunky poem anymore. My professor Campbell was completely right in saying, you know, declunk this by making it rhyme. Um, and I'm grateful to him for encouraging me to do that. I'm going to skip to rhyming in a second, but before I do, I want to back up and talk about Mammal. Tell us about that book. So that book um, is coming out next year, and it's a book um, about how how we're just mammals. I weave in the legacy of Carl Linnaeus with pregnancy, with categorization, um, with attempting to clean up what is going to always be messy and dirty and visceral, which is procreation. Um, and then I also recently published a, another book, which is my first nonfiction book, and that one is called A Petite Mal, which you so graciously also um, shared in, in the Blue Mountain Review, which I also eagerly encourage people to check out. Well, let's move forward to the remembrance of music. How does music play into your creative process when you talk about rhyming? You know, I, I think I have a, a very strong meter and rhythm in my mind when I write. And to be honest, I used to hide from it. I used to shy away from it because... Um, you know, you don't want a nursery rhyme at the end of the day, but at the same time, there is a power to musicality that drives a poem forward. And there's also, of course, the power of memory, right? Because rhyme helps us remember um, lines that are special. And then on the other hand, um, I feel that, you know, my poems tend to be very conversational. And when you insert rhyme in conversational poems, 
it draws attention to the poet's intent and also adds elements of both play and subversion. Um, and I actually leaned into this meter and rhyme in my nonfiction book that I just published, A Petite Mal. And even within the prose, I wove in some meter and some rhyme um, to, to add a, you know, elements of lyricism to, to the paragraph form. Into the world of literature and what you're enjoying now, what books are you reading at the moment? Right now, I am deep into Hopscotch by Julio Cortázar. Um, in Spanish, it's Rayuela. It's the, it's the, I think, 60th anniversary or 50th of its, of its publication. And many consider it to be the first hypertext novel because it comes with an instruction manual. And Cortázar gives readers three ways of reading it. You know, he's got the linear, he's got sort of a jumping back and forth. And then the third is read it however you want. Open it, read a section, read another one. Um, and I really encourage people who, who are into the fragmentation that we see writers like Jenny Offill and Clarissa Spector and Anne Carson um, and, of course, Maggie Nelson championed so, so full of skill, so skillfully, right? Um, to also discover Cortázar um, because he is he is part of that lineage. Before I let you go, I have two more questions. One, <clears throat> for those who would love to make their mark in digital poetry and digital writing and all, what advice would you impart to them? Well, I think I think there is um, a learning period that deserves respect, um, and that period um, should not be rushed in any way. I think it's important to go online, to go onto Twitter, on social media, and see what people are doing. And I think it's also important to start building a community because that's really what Web3 does. It turns an audience into a community. So there's a back and forth. It's not a just one directional sort of, you know, handing off. There's a receiving and a giving. And it's really important to, to insert yourself within that community and to see what other people are doing to respect that um, before I think you are going to understand the dynamics to start putting out your own work and sharing it with people so that people pay attention. Um, so I would, I would definitely say that, you know, take your time to learn about the community nature, the communal nature of, of Web3 and of digital writing. And last but not least, how do we keep up with you online and buy your books? Well, I am very active on um, Twitter, now called, I guess, X. Um, you can find me there at my last name, Caballero, with two L's, Anna, with one N, and then M-A, which is short for Maria, Caballero Anima, on Twitter. And on Instagram, um, it's at Anna Maria Caballero. My website is also annamariacaballero.com and you can find um, my books there and my digital poems, which anyone can read and listen to for free. Well, Anna Maria Caballero, it has been a blessing to have you on the show and I pray to have you back soon. As, as do I. I'm so grateful and I had a great time. Thank you so, so much for having me. Now let's take a break and hear Krista Wells' cover of Nirvana's Come as you are. Come as you are, as you were, as I want you to be, as a friend, as a friend, as an old enemy. Take your time, hurry up. The choice is yours, don't be late Take a rest as a friend As an old memory Doused in mud, 
And up now on Dante's, we have community-driven professor and poet, Caridad Moro Romlier. Caridad, how are you doing? I'm doing very well tonight. How are you doing, Clifford? I am fine and dandy like sour candy. Thank you for asking. Um, okay. I want to jump in this with both feet and begin at the beginning. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. I am a Cuban-American lesbian poet from uh, Los Angeles, California. I moved to Miami when I was about nine, but uh, you can take uh, the girl out of California, but not California out of the girl. So I've been negotiating queerness since I got to Miami, even before I even considered all the implications of that. So that's a little bit about me. I'm gonna just drop that for you. What is it about California that stays with you so thickly? Really, it's... uh, you know, all joking aside, I was born in LA, but my heart is in Northern California and it's those cliffs. It's just being, I, I live a, I live in Florida, so I am technically at the edge of a continent, but I feel it's so much deeper when I'm in California. There's just a, a majesticness to that coast for me. So, and I carry that inside. I can't really put a reason why. I just know it in my soul. Does that make sense? That and I think it's also the redwoods. It's like this combination of forest and ocean that I love. And that combination is also inside of me, the the water and and the greenery. And, and I'm sounding really corny, but uh, that's California for me. Well, you brought it with you to Miami, as you said before. And um, out on this coast, you're teaching, correct? Yes. Yes, I've been teaching 30 years now. Um, where do you teach and how does teaching keep you inspired? I teach for Dade County Public Schools um, and I teach, I'm an adjunct professor at Miami Dade College and FIU. I teach dual enrollment um, and uh, teaching, you know, really informs everything. Everything I do informs my teaching and teaching informs everything that I do. It's like this, this beautiful symbiosis. And my kids, it's an audience, right? So my kids keep me, they keep me current, they keep me listening, and they keep me uh, on my toes. So I'm able to pivot because of my students. And, and you know, in Florida, teaching has become very wrought 
very, uh, it's a minefield for, for teachers right now, but um, the classroom, that's still my sanctuary. That's still a place. So as I mentioned that it inspires you to words um, in your creative life with writing, uh, how does writing, what does it tell you? What does your writing say about you? It depends on the day, really. Um, sometimes my writing is just a means of expression. We, I place no judgment on those words. I just kind of write them to get them out. And sometimes the, you know, the focus, the lens is a lot sharper, is a lot more focused on and judgmental. So that forces me to, to have an objectivity, not just to the words and to the poem, but to myself really, right? Because uh, I write a lot about my life. So when you're editing a poem that's based on your life, it kind of gives you insight and maybe I'm a little better at editing my life now um, because I've learned how to do it on the page. You came to the page from a, a unique perspective. Uh, in an interview with Richard Blanco, you said you didn't have an MFA. Um, tell us about that and how you, you approached the writing as a career. I, I don't have an MFA. Um, I am, above all, an exile's daughter. And we were prone to uh, practicality. It was already flaky enough that I was going to get an English degree. Um, I mean, I wasn't going to be an accountant. What was happening, right? So the English degree was tenuous enough. But to even think of getting an MFA, uh, creative writing, that just would not have been tenable. And when when dreams aren't tenable in the life of a of a young person, it might take a minute to catch up to your dream. So I did the practical thing, and I got an MA. Right, I was I was teaching, and that MA helped make me better in my field. But when we, I was able to take those elective courses, even in the masters, I was able to do it in poetry. So I kind of like snuck in an MFA. And then after I graduated, I started to take targeted workshops with specific teachers and mentors that gave me like, you know, a semester's worth of tutelage in a three-day weekend. So I kind of cobbled my own MFA together and I've always been a voracious reader. So I, I was able to negotiate both because, you know, don't tell me no. And, and, you know, as a, as a very, as a, again, I'm always teaching. No obstacle exists. If you want to be a poet, you don't have a, an, an MFA or an MA or, or any, any A, you are still able to write your work and get it out there. If you have to quote Jaime Escalante, the ganas, do you have the ganas? That's really all that you need. You mentioned to me, um, we met in Seattle about how, you were a singer before you were a poet. And I'm always, I'm passionate about understanding how songwriting and singing parallels poetry. I mean, in my opinion, there's something, the familial connection there is, is almost impossible to differentiate one from the other. Uh, how does, how did singing bring you to poetry? And, and grander than that, how does music continue to move you? Well, as you mentioned, you know, the whole lyrical aspect and I, I have sung since I was a little girl before I think I even was speaking complete sentences that I was singing. Um, so there is a music in my head that I've always had with me and, and I want to sing um, what I'm emoting, right? I remember as a young girl, you could figure out my mood based on what I was singing. You know, if I was happy, I was singing, you know, Donna Summer and Disco and Dancing. And if if I was sad, I was singing the Torch songs and the and the love songs. So that that helped me, I think, hone uh, an aesthetic, a sensibility. And then that translates when I'm studying poetry, when I'm studying, you know, the different tonalities, the different writers, the different themes, the, the tropes. And then as a poet, I go back to the core of the music. Um, there is, I'm one of those few poets that when I'm writing, I don't, I don't write out loud, if that makes sense. I don't, I'm not speaking it out loud until after first draft. My wife is my first reader. I hand her a copy. I read it out loud then. But when I'm writing, I hear it in my head and it is a music. It is, it's like, you know, on a treble clef. And, and I 
that's the best I have to explain. I hear it in my head. And that's music. It is. It is. And it's music to my ears to know about your career in detail. So tell me and the audience about the book you have out now and those that you have on the horizon. Well, my book, Tortillera, um, came into the world from Texas Review Press in 2021. And in 2023, I'm thrilled to say, um, it was chosen to be a signature collection uh, reissue. It's hardcover, signed copies, only 100 copies were printed. And that came out in 2023. So very excited about that. And that, you know, bringing it all back to where it starts and the girl, my dream as a girl, the library was the only place my father let me go unchaperoned. So the library spent a lot of time there and my dream was to be able to check my book out one day. And I gotta tell you, when I checked my book out of the library and not just the library, my childhood library, um, that really, really brought me full circle. So that particular book is, is the achievement of the girl that I was. So that's, that's what's out there right now and what's cooking in my bed, in my head, and on the page, uh, it's still working as my second book. Uh, probably I have a good, it's weird that space after a first book, because I've been writing poems, you know, piecemeal, like this one for this and that and the other. And now I have a solid core group of poems again. So I'm starting to look at them now as a cohesive group instead of individuals. Now I'm looking at the chorus to put it back to the music metaphor, right? Now I'm looking at the chorus of the book. So that's really exciting and kind of scary too, because, you know, it's like, it's like deciding to have a second child, I think that, you know, oh, I already love this one so much. Am I, it's impossible to love the next one. So, so the answer I think is yes, I'm doing that. And I'm also working on um, nonfiction lyrical essays. So that's exciting, different voice to me, but not that far. From the poetic realm well from the poetic realm uh we have a poem from you that you're about to read that's been nominated for best of the net right yes best of the net it came out in great uh, from green linden press under a warm green linden um and it's called elizabeth and i negotiate and it's a poem where the first the title is the first line of the poem elizabeth and i negotiate over what we can afford once we get to Charleston, the holy city, where churches outnumber everything but bars. Our favorite one on Queen Street, where I kissed her on New Year's in 2015, insisting she shouldn't worry because we had a right to feel safe, even in the South. I felt entitled to splurge on a horse-drawn carriage where we cuddled in full sight, got us a king-sized bed and $30 shrimp and grits. I paid for with cash I earned after withholding tax, like the couples to our left and our right. We dropped a bundle because after years spent hiding, we knew there were worse things to spend than money, like the time we could never get back. But this poem is not about that. Today, we gauge the exact amount of PDA we can afford. We take kissing off the table, tell each other it's a wait until we get inside. We feel brave when we allow ourselves the risk of holding hands in the holy city, where we are now relearning how to be afraid. Worse things to spend than money. That is, that is so good. That is so good. Um, for those who want to get their hands on your work and keep up with you online, how do we, how do we do that? Uh, you can find me at caradadmorrow.com. And you can always find my book on my press, texasreviewpress.org and also on amazon.com. Community-driven professor and poet Caridad Moro Gronlier. It has been a true blessing to have you on the show tonight. Oh, it's been such a pleasure to be here with you tonight. Thank you for having me. Yes, ma'am.
Well, folks, we've come to the end of yet another episode of Dante's Old South. I'm your host, Clifford Brooks, and I want to thank my guests, the musicians, our sponsors, but most of all, I want to thank you, the listener. Now, if y'all would like a tutor in creative writing or a helping hand in dealing with a late-in-life diagnosis of autism, I have courses on each of these called The Brooks Sessions on Teachable.com. I would be honored and overjoyed to deal with you on both or either of these topics close to my heart. Good night, y'all. Be safe and smile.